DEI budgets are under attack, but the goals haven't changed. Whether you're looking to increase your DEI knowledge, expand your market reach, or gain a competitive advantage in business, we have the solution. TDM Library is your single source for expert curated DEI resources, strategies, and solutions, all designed to help you transform your workplace culture and be a more effective contributor. For $9.99 per month, you get access to our searchable subscription-based digital library. There, you'll find articles, practical how-to guidebooks, podcasts, award-winning micro-videos, and more than 700 Q&As designed to help DEI practitioners, thought leaders, and executives create a more inclusive workplace. Whether you prefer to listen, watch, or read, we have the resources for you. TDM Library goes beyond the basics to dive deep into topics such as inclusive language, the business case for DEI, talent acquisition, and C-suite engagement. For less than the price of a sandwich, you get access to our library of more than a thousand pieces of original expert curated DEI content. Join today and get your first 30 days free. Get your library card now at tdmlibrary.thediversitymovement.com. You can't stop me, nothing's gonna stand in my way. You're listening to the High Octane Leadership Podcast with Donald Thompson. The world is shifting around you. None of us were trained for this changing environment. You need high octane leadership in an empathetic world before your business is swallowed alive. This podcast focuses on actionable, hands-on tools you can use to become a high octane leader today and grow strong leaders throughout your organization to survive tomorrow. Join me along with global C-suite leaders, rising stars, ambitious entrepreneurs, and other leaders from across industries as we dissect, interrogate, and redefine high-octane leadership in an empathetic world. This podcast is your home for uncovering the tools, lessons, and strategies you need to push your leadership to the next level. I'm here today uh, with a good friend of mine that I met uh, through one of my speaking engagements, Grant Clefcorn. And Grant is a sales professional, uh, currently works at Salesforce. And one of the things that we're going to do today that is a little bit different is Grant is going to interview me. And so a lot of times when I do speaking engagements and different things, I will offer to the audience uh, that I'm always available for a cup of coffee. And one of the reasons I do it is, too, because it's true. Uh, I like meeting new people. If I can be helpful to them, I want to. But also, I can make that offer because it's usually about 3 to 5% of any crowd that ever reaches back out. So I can sound incredibly magnanimous and amazing, and I know by the numbers, I'm only going to have a handful of cups of coffee, and usually those turn into pretty phenomenal relationships. And so Grant reached out and said he had a couple questions, and I said, well, uh, instead of charging you a couple thousand dollar consulting fee, why don't we make some content? Uh, you ask some questions. Uh, I'll be as candid as I can be and see if I can be helpful. But with that said, Grant, I'm going to turn it over to you. And before we get started with the questions, give a little bit about uh, your background, um, where you're from, kids, family, anything that would allow uh, our audience to get to know you a little bit better uh, as an individual. Sure. Thanks. Um, and thanks for saying yes to this. Um, I have learned over the years that like just raising your hand it's like three to five percent of us who do it, and 
you know, I may not be the best, but like I always raise my hand and it's, you know, it's worked out well for me over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, wife, we were just talking about this earlier. So wife, three daughters, uh, twins that are about to be four and um, a, a six-year-old about to be seven. Um, so if you ever have a Zoom call with me, like you'll hear them in the background, bang, in. banging on the doors, <laughs> sliding things under the doors. Um, I have, you know, so I currently work at Salesforce. I sell into healthcare and life sciences, mostly providers. So hospital systems and people who provide care. Um, a little bit probably varied background from the typical technology salesperson. So in high school, I started actually volunteering at the Apex Fire Department. Um, we actually met for coffee across from the station where I first started. So um, all through high school and college, I volunteered and just loved it. And so it was like my one drive was to get out of college and go be a fireman on like the busiest fire truck with the most action possible. And so I, you know, I chased that dream after um, college for um, about 10 years. So okay. started, you know, somewhere small like Apex in Morrisville. And then I ended up on, you know, a couple of the busiest trucks in Charlotte. And, um, you know, I really loved it and I was going full bore, but I knew I wasn't going to do that forever. Um, you know, in my head, I kind of treated it like a lot of people treat the military as they go in and, and do kind of this exciting job for a short period of time and they transition out into something else. And so for me, uh, my dad was pharmaceutical sales okay. for a long time. And I I just always saw that as be kind of like the next thing. Um, and so, you know, after spending some time in Charlotte at the fire department, um, you know, riding the busy trucks, getting all that fun and exciting stuff, I started looking for a way to transition into something similar to that. And, um, you know, I raised my hand on LinkedIn to a recruiter who, you know, we talked about um, this medical device job selling into Fire and EMS. I went to go work for a company called Zoll Medical, selling medical devices. Did that for about, you know, four years. And then what led me to Salesforce is um, something that, you know, I guess we have a connection here. You know, you came and talked to, to me at uh, NC State, so I'm doing my MBA there. And one of the projects that I did revolved around um, kind of assessing markets for, um, like basically to recommend to our company, would you enter this market? And I picked um, a couple of different AI tools in the medical device space. And in doing all this research, I really realized there's a lot of of, uh, upward trajectory in healthcare using technology. Mm. Um, And so I, started looking at opportunities. How can I leverage what I've done in the past with kind of what that industry is doing, which is what led me to Salesforce. You know, we just moved back from Charlotte to the Raleigh area a couple years ago. And um, yeah, all the family's here. So Good, that's good. just a little bit about my uh, my background. No, that's cool. I think uh, my producers probably already have the note, but uh, we've got our tagline, right? From firefighter to sales professional. <laughs> like that's that's kind of kick-ass right there. So why don't you take it away, my friend? Uh, fire off some questions. We'll handle some answers and see what we can get done in the next 30 minutes. Okay. At the core of why I reached out is um, a lot of what I deal with is lower, I guess I'd say middle market um, companies or, or organizations. And I'm reaching out and dealing with the C-suite. And the thing, the common background that I've seen with a lot of these uh, guys and gals is that a lot of them come from a finance background or their background looks different from mine. And as an aspiring leader, someone who's like doing my MBA, like reading into leadership and stuff, 
my question for you is, is and this is kind of like the base for it all, is like you came from sales, you have a, a background similar to mine. Uh-huh. Um, I'm curious to learn about your thoughts on, you know, how did you, uh, or things I should be thinking about going from sales to eventually the, the C-suite and taking on bigger leadership roles. And what are the things that you've learned over the years that, you know, I don't have a finance background. What are the things that I should be thinking about? Or, or No. So the, the central question being like, what do you think about and what did I learn as a sales professional and then transitioning to running and leading businesses and serving on boards? And uh, it's a great question. Uh, one of the things that I recommend to folks that have the chops for it, the intentionality for it, is sales is a wonderful way to learn uh, the way businesses work. Because in order for you to, I mean, if you think about what a sales professional has to do today, right, it is very different from what people perceive in terms of like, um, and this isn't to denigrate someone that is selling cars or selling something door to door, but those are more transactional sales uh, of a particular product in a particular moment in time, right? Um, For the sales professional that is really wanting to create that multi-million dollar year uh, quota fulfillment and really grow a career, you have to understand how the business dynamics work in order to run through all of the processes required to sell a million dollar deal, which means you've got to know in your case, right, in healthcare, right, is this healthcare organization making money or not? What are the different service lines that are most profitable for them, right? Where did the leadership come from, right? Are they PhDs that came from academia? Are they folks that were surgeons in the field working uh, in, 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 in hands-on element? Um, so that you can be the link between the problem you're trying to solve and the way the people you're selling to view that problem. And so sales professionals really is all about building relationships so that you have the best information possible from the people you're trying to sell to because your job is to make their life better. Your job is not to meet the quota. Right. That's a um, that is an outcome of helping your clients meet their objectives. And so when you think about it with that perspective, then you say, wait a minute, if somebody's coming at this from a finance background, if I'm selling to people that are really looking at it from a numbers perspective. How is adding right this new technology going to save them money, reduce their risk and allow them to do the same work with fewer people or faster? Those are financial drivers of a decision-making process. And that means you have to ask them better questions. A lot of times junior sales professionals will think about, they'll ask, what is the cool phrase to help me close? What is the right thing to say? And all of those things are important. There's a million books on them. All of it matters. What I've learned over the years in selling technology, in selling services, in selling marketing, uh, in brand fulfillment is if I ask that leader what problem they need to solve and why that problem allowed them to even have a conversation with me, they will tell me the levers that need to be moved in order for me to make a transaction work, in order for me to build a relationship, and mostly increase the time to value of what we do together. And so number one, it's about the questions that I ask, right? Number two, I think that sales professionals that then grow into more leadership, grow into executives, are super curious, which means you want to learn a lot about the leaders that you're selling to. That means instead of going to sales conferences, you want to go and show up at some of the similar conferences as your target uh, prospect. 
because you want to hear what they're hearing, learn what they're learning. I always would ask leaders that I was selling to what they're reading, what conferences they're going to, right? And what trends do they think are important in their industry? Those three questions allow me to do a lot of different types of homework to now put myself in the mental model of the people that I'm selling to so that I can be helpful. Number one. Number two as a sales professional in terms of moving to that executive level is most large sales require you to lead a team to fulfill it. Usually as the sales professional, you're not the technology engineer. You're not the architect. You're not the implementation consultant. So you have to be able to lead a team of three, four, five, ten people and lead that team to create successful selling environment for the client. So for example, instead of, I tell salespeople all the time, I'm like, Don, I've got this million dollar deal. It's like, no, you don't. I said, you've got a hundred thousand dollar deal that can turn into a million dollar deal. No, no, no. I'm going big, man. I'm going, I was like, okay. Once you go to a seven figure transaction too soon, think about all the approvals that are required for them to say yes. If you shrink it to a pilot, now all of a sudden you've decreased the risk on the organization and it's a smaller number of people that have to say yes. So then you get that first yes, which may be a fifty dollars to $100,000 pilot. You create success. Then you de-risk your champion's ability to vouch for your solution because they're vouching for your solution, not on what they hope will occur. They're vouching on your solution based on the successful pilot. And then the next level of decision makers are looking at you from a, from a standpoint of what you've delivered, not what you hope to deliver. And then you're just adding zeros on it. So if the pilot had 100 users and the bigger deal has 1,000 users, those 100 users that are sample set of the 1,000, now all of a sudden you have a much more forceful way to communicate the business value. That is thinking about sales from an executive point of view. How do you reduce the risk of them saying yes? That works across sales. That works across if you're an engineering professional, if you're a computer science professional. Because at the end of the day, an executive is about how do you deploy resources in a way that creates the most upside and the least risk for your organization. And so those are some of the mental models that you learn as a sales professional. And then the final thing I'll say in terms of executive visibility, every organization's top salespeople have the visibility of the executives of their region and their company. So by being a top sales professional, you have the ability to now work and network with other leaders throughout the organization that are going to be a part of the promotion pathway for you and growth in that organization or others. And your ability, for example, to go into an organization if you're interviewing for somewhere else and say, yes, I've hit my quota. Yes, I've doubled my quota. Yes, I've led a sales team. But I've done that by being able to partner with our marketing organization, our product organization, our service and solution organization to deliver great value to our clients. That is much more powerful than I hit my quota. I delivered value to my company above quota by managing and expanding the relationships with these other pillars in the organization. So by getting to know the different uh, folks internally and helping make them stars in your sales process, now all of a sudden you get better visibility with executives and you get first look at opportunities as the company grows. So a uh, little bit of a long-winded answer, but uh, there's the question has a lot, had a lot of depth to it. I appreciate that. So expanding on that a little bit, um, you know, a lot of us in the the MBA program, you know, we're we're individual contributors. 
we aspire to, you know, leadership roles. You know, what, what you talked about just now was really being successful in like the sales part and like setting yourself up to be you know, promoted or whatever. Yeah. You know, you're obviously a CEO, you're on boards, you see other parts of the business, you know, finance and operations and marketing. And, and as an MBA who's wanting to get exposure to all these other facets, what are the ones that you saw like most important? How deep do people like me need to be at this point diving into them? Or do we just need a high level awareness? Like what are your thoughts on, on something like that? Yeah, I, that's a great question. Um, I think finance awareness, understanding is important and all that's required. Um, I don't think you need to be a financial guru um, to run an organization, but you have to know and appreciate uh, those operational functions, right? You have to understand a PL, you have to understand the difference between um, <clears throat> something that is a capital expense, right? Things of that nature. So cursory knowledge is fine, and you'll get that through your MBA, right? I think the relationships that are going to be the biggest drivers for your long-term business success is understanding the integration between sales and marketing. Like that's going to be very, very critical because um, one of the things that has changed over the years is that more and more companies are marketing driven versus sales driven. 20, 30 years ago, sales drove everything within a company or most companies, or you were either a sales driven company or a technology driven company, right? Um, and most companies today are driven by their brand and their market segmentation, their thought leadership, their brand perception in the market, right? And so, for example, if you work for Salesforce, but there are a bunch of other tools that are similar to Salesforce, but Salesforce has a phenomenal brand, right? Salesforce was a market leader in software as a service. Salesforce has a phenomenal brand in terms of how they treat their employees, in what they do in their community. All of these things mean that Salesforce gives you a leg up when you put that Salesforce card down versus any of the other competitors. doesn't mean you win all the time. It just means that market penetration helps you win for, as a sales professional. The other thing in terms of understanding that marketing and sales integration is lead generation is now much more automated, much more digital, much more processed through all the different marketing channels. And if you don't understand those as a sales professional, then you can't give marketing your best insight of what works for you in the field. A lot of your sales collateral, your sales operation materials come from marketing, right? And so if you're saying a talk track with clients that works differently than what your brand is doing at a holistic level at the top, but you don't have a relationship to communicate that, then the whole organization is missing something because the sales professional is the tip of the spear. You're on the ground, so to speak, talking to clients every day and what you're hearing, if you now translate that back to your marketing department, not only are you understanding the value of marketing, but they're building a relationship with a sales professional with you versus that typical conflict. Marketing's not giving me enough leads, blah, blah, blah. And that's an easy conversation to have versus having the conversation of how do we make each other's worlds better. And then that gives you insight to the mind of a marketer. And as you're looking to get promoted, own your own company, be a CEO, you've got to know both of those things. The other component is product development. Um, one of the ways that is a powerful way in the door with clients is new innovation, is early adoption, is how are you leveraging, for example, um, new technology. Let's just use AI for example, right? You mentioned AI and technology in helping accelerate healthcare outcomes. That's a powerful language talk point. But if you don't have the depth of understanding of the new technologies, 
right, and how they matter and which ones are mature, which ones are uh, really kind of out there in terms of futuristic. But for certain clients, they love to test and sandbox things. So I would say the marketing relationship and I would say the development with product development and innovation are really powerful for the sales professional because you want to be on top of what's next. And then you want to be very tightly aligned with the lead generation engine and the brand engine of your company. So advice for someone who's wanting to better integrate with, you know, the sales and the marketing is really just, if I'm just understanding this right, um, basically understanding what marketing strategy is and where you, how you can communicate that and kind of stay in a consistent brand. It's, it's that, but really let's get practical. It is having deep relationships with the people on your marketing team. Right. And letting them share with you in more detail what they're doing and why. It is putting in your budget, right, um, to spend quality time with the folks that are on your lead generation team, right? How's, how are things working for them? What are new things they're trying? What are new talk tracks they're trying, right? Um, what's working, what's not working? That rapport is going to develop relationships that will then allow you to create in two-way street influence, right? Because they're going to want to know what you're seeing also. And that, you know, in this digital age, this Twitter age, this email age, this age of, of all these tools, chatbots, uh, I think one-on-one conversations, one-on-one Zooms, one-on-one lunches are still a superpower with building relationships throughout your organization. And so I absolutely would, uh, would make that a priority. Um, people get promoted that have great rapport with the largest number of people across the business. So when I was working at a company called iCube, this was early in my career, but a game changer in my career. I was the head of sales. I was VP of sales for this company. And part of our business was sold to Adobe in, in San Jose, California. Adobe only wanted the technology team. So engineers, they bought IP. That's all that they wanted. So the part of the business I was running on, the sales team and uh, our engineering services group, so we built code for uh, high-end manufacturers that helped them manage uh, a lot of their information assets. Long story short, I had good relationships with all of our clients because I was the sales professional and leading the sales arm. I had a good relationship with our internal development team and the leaders and the project leaders. I had a good relationships with folks that are reselling our tools. It was a natural byproduct that when this small company was looking for a new leader, that I had the opportunity for, to interview and then ultimately was selected to lead that the, the part of the business that Adobe didn't want to buy because I had those relationships and understanding right, across all aspects of how we make money as a company. And so in order for the business to stay consistent and grow, I could create continuity and scale, right, because I was a known commodity. And I had invested time in those relationships. And so even though I wasn't a technologist or computer scientist, those development team members learned to trust me because I'd already been taking them to lunch. I'd already been asking questions. I'd already been fighting for them for more time to deliver against the technology deliverable if they needed it, right? And so there was already that respect that was built. So the practical component of what I'm describing of the pillars of marketing and product and professionals is make sure your relationships within the organization extends uh, deep into those departments. Thanks for clarifying. And I think the term we use internally is multi-threaded. I guess that that's you know, like put a name to it. Yeah. You obviously deal with a lot of younger professionals. You're, you're coaching them. What is the thing, the, the common thread you see of the ones that are 
you know, really crushing it? What are the things that, that some of them are, what mistakes are a lot of them making that you see that's common for young ambitious professionals? So emerging leaders, um, and this really extends to leaders in general in terms of the way I'm gonna answer this question, but emerging leaders is specifically what you're asking. Um, it's the level of accountability they're willing, of personal accountability they're willing to take for their results. At a certain level in your career, you have to understand the differences between reasons and excuses, right? Your business can hit turbulence or headwinds because the overall economy, right, in healthcare, in your case, or in manufacturing or in financial services is down. Okay, that's a reason, right? That's a reason for the slowdown, right? It's not a reason for you not to make and overcome your quota. And so what people tend to do at the lower levels is they allow macro events to define what they can or cannot do. And so I'll give an example in, in my case, and this wasn't what I did as an individual. This is what the team did that I was a part of that I was fortunate enough to lead. But in my first role as CEO, um, the company I was leading, we were selling into manufacturing. And if you think about um, the, uh, the mortgage crisis, 2007, eight and the recession, uh, some really bad times in those, those 2000 spans, but our firm grew 30% year over year through those times, even when technology delivery was being outsourced to India, it impacted our business in a significant way. That was really when companies were accelerating and building development centers all across India. And then coming back to U.S. suppliers and saying, you're going to have to match these rates or I'm going to take this business offshore, right? Not great. So that's a reason, right, that our business was slowing, right? But we had to figure out how to adapt and overcome and win anyway. And so what we did was we went to a lot of the companies that we were working with. We did do some price concessions, but we did price concessions, but we negotiated a bigger slice of the pie. If they had 10 suppliers like us, we said, why don't you go to five and make the top five of us healthy? And they were like, man, okay, that makes sense, right? And then we, once they got to top five, we we're like, well, we're the number one of those five, so why don't you make sure we're the strongest? And so of that pie, what ended up happening is our pie got bigger. Even though my margins were a little bit lower during that time, our business didn't go backwards because we used smart negotiating techniques. And I don't give two, two shits about the ones that went out of business. Right. I only cared about the 25, 30 people on my team, keeping them working, keeping them paid, keeping them growing. So we lowered our prices quickly, but we we made sure that we did it in a way that we created a bigger pie and then somebody else felt the pain. But the reality is there were reasons for the downturn, a trend towards outsourcing. Right. Uh, but there was also ways that we were creative, smart and hungry. And then the other thing that was really important as you learn how to survive and adapt being the best at what you do is your protection in good times and bad. If you are a supplier to a company, be their top supplier. You'll be protected in good times and bad. If you are a sales professional in an organization and you're in the top 2 to 3%, you will be protected in times good or bad. When you're in the middle of the pack, you are always at risk. And that's a mindset that you have to develop as a, as a sales professional, as a business leader, as a competitor, right? As people protect winners. And that may not sound however it sounds these days, but it's still the truth, right? And so um, that's one of the things that I, I share with folks as an emerging leader. You have to adopt 
a winning mentality. And that winning mentality means you have to adopt a high degree of personal accountability. So that means if you don't have a good rapport as a sales professional with marketing, it's not marketing's fault. What do you need to do that marketing feels more comfortable sharing better and clearer data with you? And when you approach that marketer with that attitude, you're going to get better results. When a product delivery may or may not be late, maybe there's more bugs in the product, maybe there's a customer satisfaction issue, and you're pointing fingers at the product delivery team versus going to them and saying, we've got some customer data that's factual. How do I need to shape my selling around the features that crush it in the marketplace? Stay away from some of the features we're working on. Give you all time to rework those. I still meet my number and grow, but we set the right client expectation. Oh my God, yeah, let's have this conversation. Let's work on these three feature sets right now. They're robust, they're growing, we're killing it. Let's de-emphasize these, but if you but if you get us in there with these three features, we're gonna be ready with these next three and a quarter. Now all of a sudden you're having a productive, powerful conversation, but you're removing the finger pointing. And so for me, the biggest misstep emerging leaders make is that it's somebody else's responsibility for them to grow and win. Right? It's somebody else's responsibility to find them a mentor versus seeking them out. People say, well, how do you find a mentor? Ask your boss how to do more. You will stand out from every other human in your company because everybody today is trying to figure out how to do less. How can I work less and make more money? So if you tell your leadership, listen, I've got bandwidth to do a few extra projects that help take something off your plate and give me more capacity as a professional for my learning. All of a sudden, you're in a completely different mental category than all of the other people that are talking about other stuff versus how to win. And that doesn't mean you have to work 70 hours a week. That doesn't mean you don't have to have work-life balance. That doesn't mean never see your kids work 100 hours a week. It does mean that you work different than the masses because you want to be paid different than the masses. You want to be on a different career track than the masses. You want to win when a promotion is between you or other because you've been the most flexible, the most focused, and the most financial adaptability, meaning financial adaptability, you make your number and exceed it under any conditions. You are reliable, right? And when you develop that as your internal brand, that's how you move forward. But to your question, the biggest mistake that people make across the board is falling in love with their own excuses of why they're not winning. And I, I never was able to do that. I think my athletic background, I think being a black man in America, which like at my rules are different. I think a lot of the reasons have allowed me to adopt an attitude of personal accountability. And it doesn't mean the reasons don't exist. It just means they're not enough to stop me. And, and that's an important mindset, I think, to develop. So I think, um, I guess the things that stood out to me will be one, I, I think the term that people use these days is like uh, ownership, mm-hmm. taking ownership. Um, two, would be it pays to be a winner, I think is the Here. phrase. And just, you know, from sales like that, 100% it's just, makes it's sense. just what's up. <laughs> um, and obviously, like, just the people who are making mistakes are just the people that aren't doing those two things. Is there something you see uh, people investing time in that maybe, you know, it's not obviously like a mistake, this, like, um, not taking ownership, but something that maybe people are focused on that maybe they shouldn't be? Yeah, they're focused on... Uh, making a mistake versus what they're learning from the mistake. Most things still are pretty simple. And fear of failure holds people back. You know, I remember coming up, and I was part of a sales organization, and they used to give us these no fear t-shirts, right? I was like, yeah, no fear, right? You know, you got to do this. And that's kind of bullshit too, right? Like, everybody has fears and concerns and things that um, 
that have anxiety over. The difference is how do you manage those fears and don't let them stop you? How do you take those fears and see what's real and what's not, right? And figure out how to adapt and overcome it, right? And a lot of that is because we process information in a certain way. But if you have peer groups or mentors that you're working with, they can, they can allow you to look at a situation that you were afraid of and figure out how to win within that same construct because they have a different point of view on it. You can borrow the confidence of others, right? I'll give an example of borrowing confidence. Uh, my mentor, Grant Willard, uh, good, good, good friend and, and mentor, but he is a product innovator um, and always has been on the technology side. And he's got, uh, he's a patent holder, countless products that he has looked at markets, developed, turned into commercial ac- applications and have been sold uh, for millions of dollars, right? That's not my gifting. So when I run into product decisions with the companies that I run or the companies I consult with, I make sure that I have a steady diet of bi-weekly or monthly meetings with Grant and, and take him to any restaurant he wants to go to, any wine he wants. And because he's brilliant in this area, he likes to talk about it. <laughs> and I like to let him. And then I write down notes and I ask lots of questions, right? And so because I know an area that I'm not as strong in but is required for me to do what I do, I have a network of people in those spaces that are savants in that space, and I make them my kind of uh, closet board of directors in that space, right? And it's a way to action your network, right? It's what you did with me that's really powerful is you heard me speak in front of 200 other people, right? And I made an offer to a cup of coffee, and two years ago you took me up on it. We had a conversation. And then you've lightly kept in touch over the couple of years. So that when you did have a question, right, it didn't feel out of the blue, right? And it was something that was easy to say yes to, right? Because you, as a leader, I'm always inspired by, and I have a responsibility to give back to people that are competitive learners. Because I want that seat in the ground because of the people that have helped me or the people that I may need help by with tomorrow. And so most leaders are willing to spend 15, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, cup of coffee with people that are on the rise up. And so, you know, to, to specifically address kind of the, the question is make sure that the things you may be uncertain about, you might not be as strong at, acknowledge it, admit it, and build a network of people that are strong there. And what will happen is through the process of working with them, talking with them, you'll get stronger over time, but they'll help you borrow their knowledge or borrow their courage in an area quickly to move you through the short term. Yeah, I, it's, you, you talk about like fear and. <clears throat> it's a real thing. The, uh, the, the example I was gonna give to my, my daughter is like, if you're not afraid, like there's no way to be brave. If you're not, if, if you're not scared to jump off the cliff, it's, there's nothing brave about it, but it, it's when you do it, even though. That's you know, right. And I had, I had a, you know, a, a little, you know, my palms would get sweaty thinking about climbing a hundred foot ladder in the fire department days. But I remember making a really distinct choice at the beginning to say, I'm never going to let just the fear of something hold me back from just, you know, going for it. And if I think of, like, you can use the fear of heights as an example, but like, if you, um, if you just always make the decision that I'm going to do it, even though I'm scared, like, eventually you get past it. And that's exactly right. And what a great example. And what a great example for your kids, right? Because what do we want for the people we lead? What do we want for our family? Is we want them to be able to fulfill their goals and dreams. 
And it's hard to have big dreams if you let fear dictate what your dreams are. They just don't go together, right? To have big dreams means you have to attack some level of fear and uncertainty and doubt. And so that's why I really I don't subscribe to the no fear policy anymore. I, to your point, I um, more like the term courageous, right, and overcome and those kinds of words. Because we all have things that, um, you know, that are the monkey on our back, so to speak, right, um, that, that, that are a heavier lift. Um, you know, another fear that people have is looking bad in meetings. Think about all the questions that aren't asked because people don't want to look bad. I want to be smart. So how, how am I smart? Well, I ask questions of smart people. I don't really care what you think, they think. If, if I'm in the room and someone can give me knowledge that can help me meet my goals, then I want to answer that question, right, so that I can get stronger and better faster. But there's a lot of people that don't, that leave things unsaid because of how they think they'll look in a meeting, right? Okay, then don't ask it in the meeting. Walk up to the person after the meeting and say, listen, can we have a sidebar? I've got a quick question that I didn't feel super comfortable asking in a group. Could I get five minutes? Hey, listen, I've got a question that I didn't feel comfortable asking in, 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 the, in the broad construct. Could I send you an email and then you can kind of answer it in a video or you can kind of call me up and however you want to answer it back would be great. But still getting what you need, right, in, in spite of that, that fear of, of how, how you look, how you look to other people. It's amazing to me when I um, talk to emerging leaders how much of the conversation is about relationships with coworkers and their manager. It is in, in, in communication. So much of leadership is relationship. It's communication with colleagues. It's communication with your leaders. Um, and the stronger you get there, the more you're gonna you're gonna. It's kind of it's a cheat code, right? You're gonna you're gonna jump levels. Um, executives are people. Executives have a bigger title. They have a different path. A, you know, a bigger office, a bigger comp package at the moment. But nobody starts out day one an executive in companies, right? If you start a company from scratch, okay. But like in a traditional company, you, you have to start at some level, right? And you move up to senior management, C-suite and different things. And people fail to realize how most executives remember, right, the fears they had of approaching someone with a bigger title. Most people are more open than you would think to helping the next leaders come up. And the people that aren't open and helpful, you don't want them anyway, right? Because like, that's where the manipulation occurs. That's where idea stealing occurs, all that. You're, you're just looking for people in your organization that want to, that are so successful and have such a strong emotional IQ, EQ, that they don't feel threatened by helping the next riser in the business. They feel pride, right? In my case, um, I was running a marketing organization, Walk West, that is now led by Abba Bowers. And I take pride in hiring Abba, mentoring Abba, and now seeing her as a CEO that is doing amazing work uh, in the brand and the marketing uh, space. Uh, there's a friend of mine, Greg Boone, that um, is a technology CEO that worked with me as a senior engineer when he started his career, when we started working together, and now is uh, a CEO of a technology company. I take pride in seeing him rise up, right? And so for me, uh, and it's not me, everybody that's listening, but find people like me that take pride in growing others. And I think an important thing for emerging leaders 
is not the company you work for. It is the managers and their managers that you work for. People are very specific about how much money they want to make, what brand company they want to make, and all those things, and I think it's fine. But the most important thing is your relationship with your direct manager and leader. Is that somebody that's going to task you, or is that somebody that's going to teach you? The task part, everybody's going to do. You're going to have things you need to do for that business leader in that department and that organization. But are they going to teach you? And if you have somebody that's going to task you and teach you and train you, well, then you ultimately are almost working for free. Because you're, you're literally like you're getting paid to go to school to get to your next level. And that's what Grant did for me in, in so many ways. That's why I can never repay him. Like I was making money all the time we were working together, but he would... He liked to walk around the industrial, the business complex that we would work in. That's how he like collected his thoughts. And he's like, hey, you want to go walk around the building? And I was like, yeah, cool. And we would walk and he would ask me questions. What do you think about this? And we think about that. And it was really like I was like a thought partner initially because he, he just wanted to talk something out that he was trying to get aligned in his, in his mind. But through listening to him, through talking with him, through solving problems with him, he solved the problems. I just got to listen and sometimes I would add different ideas. But over the course of our relationship, the thing that changed is he would then start asking me, hey, what do you think about this? Over time, I became a part of the conversation with him, right? And sometimes he would take my, he was like, man, that's, I put, that makes, I'm going to do that your way. That makes a lot of sense. And maybe it was like one out of 10 times. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I mean, whatever, right? Because he's a really, really smart guy. But it allowed me to now develop a relationship with a leader and see that two-way street rapport and problem solving. And like, if you come into a negotiation with me, or if you go into a meeting with me, right, it's gonna be tough for you to be stronger than I am, because I'm gonna talk to five experts before, and if you're going on what you think, what you read, what you learned, how are you gonna have the knowledge power that I do? Right, somebody asked me the other, a couple weeks ago, Don, like, you seem like you're right a lot. It's like, because I do my homework. I do my research. And then I don't talk till most everybody else in the meeting has talked. So if somebody else has two or three good ideas, I might not introduce any of my ideas that sound dumb because I can calculate them in my head. I'll I'll just support the idea from Carl or from Susan or from whoever that was really good. Or by speaking at the middle or the end of the meeting, I've got all of the debate is my new knowledge. So then the idea I wanted to present is stronger because I can link it to the other things that were already discussed. Most people want to talk first and loudest. I think emerging leaders need to learn how to ask the best questions and pick their spots in meetings when they present their ideas. But asking the best questions, I think, is a leadership superpower. It makes you smart fast. It allows you to leverage the knowledge of others in a public setting on specific items. And the answers and the data that you derive from that become yours. And so every, you know, people are like, I hate meetings. I hate, you know, we have so many meetings because they're bad at meetings. If you use meeting as an opportunity to get smarter and ask questions and gain support from smart people, the meetings are good. They're a good use of your time. They're a smart use of your time. They're a way to get best practices from other sales professionals or other product professionals. But if you just look at the agenda and then your part, you say your two minutes and that's all you think about the meeting and then you're kind of doing two or three other things. Well, that's why you hate meetings because you're not getting any benefit from them because you don't know how to extract knowledge from those meetings, right? And so the more that um, I thought about how to get the best out of every interaction I had with people or groups, 
that's another way that I help emerging leaders uh, respond and move forward. So we um, have talked, and I think you, you, know, you talked to our group uh, of students about leadership and having, um, even we talked earlier about um, leading a team on the sales side. So like you're leading your, your sure. it might be like solutions engineers or other teammates or, yeah. or something like that. Um, it was something that I had to learn a lot. In fact, I reached out to you recently about this. On, I think being in sales and you know being in the MBA program, you're excited to be the first to like give the answer. Right, sure. And I've had to learn <laughs> yeah, yeah, to yeah. just like shut up a little bit. That's right. <laughs> um, and let other people talk first and, and all the stuff you just said. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about making the transition from the informal leader? So like you're leading a group of salespeople and kind of like, hey, here's a vision for this account or whatever it may be, or this project for an engineer, to being a more formal, like a proper leader. Um, yeah. So the informal leader is all about influence. It's all about teamwork. It's all about that common goal. And the formal leader, you actually have authority and accountability, right, for that group's success, right, over the long term. You're you're impacting someone's career. And so the biggest advice I would give for new new leaders in that formal capacity is really get to know the strengths and weaknesses of your team members, and everybody will tell you that, but it's strength, weaknesses, and motivation. When you know someone's motivation, then you can help them achieve things they're motivated by that align with the goals you need to achieve, right? So that means if you have somebody that's a new sales professional and their base salary is $40,000, and with full commission, they can make $100,000, whatever. But they want to make a quarter of a million dollars. They have a financial goal, right? Then when you're coaching them, you can link their, the coaching you're giving them, the goals you're giving them, the work you need from them, that these capabilities I'm teaching you and expecting of you are going to give you the stair step in knowledge and performance you need to meet your quarter of a million dollar financial goal. Because you can't motivate somebody by the company's goal. That's abstract to them. You have to motivate people by their personal goals. That's why they work, family they care for, all that. You may have somebody that they, they want to be able to write a check for their kid's education is their goal. right? Um, somebody that wants to use sales as a way to become an entrepreneur. right? There's all kinds of different things and goals people have. But if you don't know them, you can't intertwine that into your messaging in terms of leading them. So that's number one. It's the strengths and weaknesses, but also the motivation. Now, back to the strengths and weaknesses, right? <clears throat> you have different kinds of salespeople, for example. You have hunters, you have farmers, you have whatever you want to describe. But in engineering, you have folks that are good at building new code, folks that are good at fixing existing code, for example, right? You have folks that are good at architecting software and building out the game plan. When you have a team, you're going to have folks with a lot of different skills, Try to map the skills and strengths of your people to what you're tasking them with so that most of their workday is winning. That's how they develop operational momentum. A lot of people use terms like burnout, right? And I'm like, okay, how are people burning out when they're not working more than 40 hours a week? I don't get it. Now, this doesn't mean it's not true. It just means I don't get it, right? But through research, through talking to people and different things, the burnout is not necessarily the hours they're working. It may be the struggle of what they're working on that they don't feel comfortable. It may be the lack of appreciation that they feel. It may have nothing to do with work. It may do the fact that they're working and they're not, they don't have a great relationship with their partner or their spouse or different things like that. They have a sick child. There may be a lot of reasons why that word burnout is being used. 
if you don't have a relationship with the people on your team, you have no idea what's going on. You may try to motivate them with a firm, uplifting, go-take-the-hill conversation, and they got a sick kid at home they're worried about. You can mistime your messaging because you don't know your team well enough to tailor that messaging to what they're going through, who they are as a person, how they receive information, and what's going on in their life. They're not going to volunteer everything in their life over time. You've got to build trust with them over time, right? But you want to build that trust in, in a level that you can motivate, manage, train at a level that they can understand. The second thing in terms of having that authority is really enforcing that mistakes are not fatal, but not owning mistakes is a problem. And that's something for me. Mistakes are not an issue. But if somebody brings me something that doesn't work right, we miss a quota, we miss a product deliverable, and it's always someone else's fault, I think we want to create an organization that's allergic to that. Versus, here's the problem. Here are my ideas how to overcome it. I need your support in this area. I'd love to brainstorm it with you. How do we fix it so this mistake doesn't become a recurring model right, with how we do things? So in leading a team where you have the accountability for the results, you want to create an environment that mistakes that we own, that we solution against, good to go. Mistakes that we're finger pointing, not so much. Because I've never met a problem that's solved by blaming. It just, it just doesn't solve the problem. It just make, you're just mad at somebody, you're mad at another division or department, but it never solves the problem. The only time problems are solved when people come together with a common goal to address it, right? If we look at all of the noise in our country around um, COVID-19, right? There were people who said, there's no COVID, like it's, it's just like a cold, right? And then people started dying, hospitals filling up. All right, well, okay, maybe it's like real, right? Mask, no mask, right? All of this conversation, right? Well, the one thing that our government did, in my opinion, that was good is they had the Operation um, Warp Speed or whatever, where they developed these vaccines. They incented all the pharmaceutical companies with resources they needed, blah, 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 to get to vaccines. They fast-forwarded the FDA approvals to get vaccines for this um, virus as fast as was humanly possible. Right. Common goal, unified goal, and there was only one kind of outcome, right, is we wanted to have a vaccine for COVID. Now, whether or not people decide to take it or not, that's their business. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the scientific success of attacking a very, very life-threatening problem that was affecting the global economy. Our lives are forever changed as a result, but governments came together and did something good there. The reason, right, that people can't solve big problems is because we let all of the outlier problems keep us from being unified on the single problem. And that's why government is a mess. That's why a lot of times big companies are in disarray, is everybody's trying to solve so many different siloed problems that they don't have that one unifying goal and mission. As a leader on your team, back to your question, is you want to make sure that the opportunities you're going after and the challenges you're trying to overcome are very, very crystal clear to your team. So everyone gets up every day knowing what their true north is. And that's what you have to do as a leader as, and, and as a manager uh, and, and that new leader. Um, so we have just a couple minutes left. I did want to, I guess, wrap with the last question, sure. which is, you know, you look back. You know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 
what advice would you have wanted to give yourself um, that you had to learn over this last portion of your career? Yeah, so what would I tell my younger self? The, the number one thing that I would have uh, put on posters all over my walls, that I would have uh, really changed, is the intentional act of networking, that my network is my net worth. And that has to do with if you're in sales, deals are easier if it's a referral, right? That's just, it's because somebody vouched for you. So then expanding your network is super, super powerful. And it took me too long to realize that value. And I would have been working on that uh, from day one as a professional. Uh, The second thing is that it's never too early to start developing your thought leadership skills in your specific area. And to write, to comment on social platforms, and to really start to build your expertise in an area where you want to have a dominant presence as a leader. Those two things, I I would have um, been much more intentional. Um, Because, you know, I I can see now, right, if if I serve on the board with someone and then they say, Don, our company could use your services. I'm going to um, give you the name and number, and I'll send a recommendation email to our chief of blah, blah, blah. Man, do you know how much red tape that cuts through? And you do as a sales professional. Like that, somebody opens a door for you and uses their credibility. You get to borrow their credibility in that moment. But I didn't take advantage of that until a little bit later in my career. And even just saying that right now, I thought of two people that offered to do that for me that I need to follow up in certain areas. Like just even this, this conversation was worthwhile because of what that question just triggered of something I forgot I needed to do. I'm glad I right? like just some small part of <laughs> you, you absolutely, you absolutely <laughs> did. It was, it was super powerful. But Grant, what a great list of questions. I think they will be helpful and useful and uh, to, to our audience in a big way. But from firefighter, to sales leader is pretty cool. And so I want to commend you on what you're doing, what you're becoming, uh, chasing that advanced knowledge with your MBA. Uh, I think your career change, uh, Salesforce, great company. I've not worked for them personally, but the folks that that have that I know in my network and things that I read, uh, good stuff. And you'll have a lot of visibility for your future growth. And so if I can be of help in the future, uh, you now know this to be true. Uh, you know, reach out and I'll reach back. It may not be in that moment, which is also true. Like I'm, I'm busy uh, and just as you are, but we will absolutely get time on the calendar to learn together, to grow together and, uh, and to win in the marketplace. So for, uh, for Grant and Donald on the high-octane leadership in an empathetic world, uh, over and out, and we'll see you all next time.